like water and ice without water, no ice outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek, like one in water crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we've wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs the way. Our form now being no form and going and returning, we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs, the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is Tuesday, 28th of June, 2022. And this evening we're going to um, read from and comment on passages from a book that somebody lent me last week called The Courage to be Happy. It's by Ichiro Kishimi and Fumitake Koga. And it's a, uh, a, a an accessible and practical explanation of exploration of um, Adlerian psychology and way of life, and just a little bit on these these the translators and and on Adler. So Ichiro Kishimi was born in Kyoto, where he still lives. He has um, aspired to become a philosopher since his days in high school. He has researched Adlerian psychology since 18, 1989,
writing and lecturing on the subject and providing counselling for young people in psychiatric clinics as a certified counsellor and consultant for the Japanese Society of Adlerian Psychology. He is a translator into Japanese of selected writings by Alfred Adler and he is the author of Adora Shinrigaku Nyumon, An Introduction to Adlerian Psychology and in a, um, numerous other books he's written. And the other, uh, <clears throat> his collaborator is Fumitake Koga, an award-winning professional writer and author who has released numerous best-selling works of business-related and general non-fiction. He encountered Adlerian psychology in his late 20s and was deeply affected by its conventional wisdom-defying ideas. Thereafter, Koga made numerous visits to Ichiro Kishimi in Kyoto, gleaned from him the essence of Adlerian psychology, and took down the notes for the classical dialogue format method of Greek philosophy that is used in this book. So the, the book is structured as a, as a, um, a Socratic dialogue between a, a, philosoph a philosopher, um, Kishimi, and a youth, um, Koga, We'll, we'll encounter this as we go through, um, pick, pick out selected passages to read. But just a little bit about Alfred Adler. Um, his dates are 1870 to 1937. Um, he was an Austrian medical doctor, like many of the early psych psychotherapists, um, and is considered to be one of the founders of modern psychology along with Freud and Jung. He was, he was a um, disciple, I guess you might say, of Freud, but then broke with him at a certain point and developed his own school of, of psychology, which he called individual psychology because he believed each of us was an indivisible whole. Adler was the first to emphasize the importance of the social element in recovery and to carry psychiatry into the community. And we'll see as we read the importance of his, his concept of um, communal feeling was to his whole psychology. He um, established what he called child guidance clinics in Vienna, which is very um, ahead of his time, and just a little say a little bit about these these clinics. One of Adler's greatest achievements was the establishment of numerous child guidance clinics, the first in the world in public schools under the aegis of the city of Vienna. The, he used these child guidance clinics not only for providing treatment to children and their parents, but as places for training teachers, doctors, and counselors. In essence, it was a form, it was from there that Adlerian psychology sp spread from its start in schools to the world. And it, it makes sense that he should have started in schools because he, um, he saw his um, method or his philosophy as a form of education and the therapist as an educator. 
his, um, his central question was, what is happiness to the human being? What is happiness, true happiness, authentic happiness? The Buddha said, I teach but two things, suffering and the way out of suffering. And of course, implicit in the way out of suffering is its opposite, sukha, as opposed to dukkha. Again, happiness in the d deepest sense. But I think what is, is, is very attractive about Adler's psychology is the simplicity of his language and its accessibility, which I hope people will, will um, appreciate as we, as we read some of his, his central ideas. This uh, first passage is headed up, if we had the same kind of heart and life. And uh, as I said, this is in dialogue form, and it's, it's, um, this dialogue takes place, it's set um, three years after they had first met these two, the philosopher and the, and the, and the youth. This is the youth speaking. Three years ago, you made an assertion that went something like this. We do not live in an objective world, but in a subjective world that we give meaning to. The issue that we must focus on is not how the world is, but how we see the world. And also, we cannot escape our subjectivity. Now, the parallel we, we, we find in Buddhism is is the notion of they're living in a world of appearances that are, <clears throat> that are colored by our delusions. These distort our view of things. And our um, effort is to um, correct that view, clear, clear um, the mists away from the lens and, and, and uh, find correct or complete view. The, the very first part of our Eightfold Path is, is right or complete view. A view that is not based on a, a self or other dualism. He goes on to talk about um, whether or not we can escape subjectivity. The philosopher says, this is the crucial point. It is true that when one cannot escape subjectivity and one cannot be become another person, of course. However, we can imagine what appears in other people's eyes and we can imagine the sounds their ears hear. Adler proposes the following. First of all, think, what if I had the same kind of heart and life as this person? If one does that, one should be able to understand that I would probably be faced with the same sort of task as this person. And, and by task here, he means um, our life tasks, our, our um, primary 
the efforts we make. He saw these as being in three particular areas, the task of work, the task of friendship, and the task of love. We'll get, get to those um, eventually. But if, if I was seeing with the person's eyes and hearing with their ears, I probably would find myself behaving as they do, reacting to things as they do. He continues. Say, for example, there is a student who never even tries to study. Questioning the student by saying, why don't you study, is an attitude completely lacking in respect. Instead, start by thinking, what if I had the same heart as him? What if I had the same life as him? In, in other words, one thinks what it would be like if one were the same age as the student, lived in the same household, and had the same friends and the same interests and concerns. If one does so, one could then, should then be able to imagine what sort of attitude that self would adopt upon being faced with the task of one's studies, or why that self would refuse to study. Do you know what this sort of attitude is called? The youth replies, imagination? Philosopher, no, it is what we call empathy what we might, we might call compassion in Buddhism. He goes on, generally what is thought of as empathy, empathy, that is to say agreeing, what is generally thought of as empathy is agreeing with the other person's opinion and sharing their feelings, but that is just sympathy, not empathy. Empathy is a skill, an attitude that one has when walking side by side with another. And the youth responds, a skill? Empathy is a skill? That's right. And since it's a skill, it's something that you too can attain. Uh, a skill is, is something we can develop. It's something that we practice and can um, work with and on. Youth, oh well, isn't that interesting? Okay then, I want you to explain it as a skill, but how can one know the other person's heart and life, or whatever you call it anyway? By doing counselling for each person one by one? That's not the way to learn such things. That's exactly, as the philosopher replies, that's exactly why one has to concern, has concern for other people's concerns. One must not just observe from a distance. One must dive in oneself. You are standing in a high place without ever diving in and making remarks such as that there's no way to do this or there's such a barrier. There is no respect in that and no empathy either. I think the key, the key thing we can take from this is one must not observe from a distance in our relationships but to dive in.
think this is, think of this as being very much um, the spirit of Zen, not to to observe from a height, but to as much as possible resonate with whoever we're relating to, become one with. And, and by that we don't mean some kind of um, squishy becoming one with, but a, a sense of, of um, harmonizing with. Another chapter is um, headed, Your Now Decides the Past. Philosopher, it is the same with us as individuals. Every person is a compiler of a story of me who rewrites his or her own past as desired to prove the legitimacy of me now. And he turns, turns things upside down. We think of it usually the other way. Our past determines our present. He continues, with regard to memory, think of it like this. From the innumerable events that have happened in a person's past that a person chooses only those events that are compatible with the present goals, gives meaning to them and turns them into memories. And conversely, if events that run counter to the person's goals are erased in the youth. Huh? Philosopher. Okay, I'll give you an example from my counselling. Once, a man I was counselling recalled an incident from his childhood in which a dog attacked him and bit his leg. Apparently, his mother had often told him, if you see a stray dog, stay completely still, because if you run, it will chase you. There used to be a lot of stray dogs roaming the streets then, you see. So, one day he came across a stray dog on the side of the road. A friend who had been walking with him ran away, but he obeyed his mother's instructions and stayed, rooted to the spot, and the stray dog attacked him and bit his leg. Youth, are you saying the memory was a lie that he fabricated? Philosopher, no, it was not a lie. It is probably true that he was bitten. There had to be a, con a continuation to that episode, however. Through several sessions of counselling, the continuation of the story came back to him. While he was crouching down in pain after getting bitten by the dog, a man who happened to be riding by on a bicycle stopped, helped him get up, and took him straight to the hospital. In the early stage of counselling, his lifestyle or worldview had been that the world is a perilous place and people are my enemies. To this man, the memory of having been bitten by a dog was an event signifying that this world is a place full of danger. However, once he had begun, little by little, to be able to think the world is a safe place and people are my comrades, episodes that supported that way of thinking started coming back to him.
Was one bitten by a dog or was one helped by another person? The reason Adlerian psychology is considered a psychology of use is this aspect of being able to choose one's own life. The past does not decide now. Your now decides the past. I thought of a, a personal example very similar to this in terms of how we can um, shape our, our, our sense of who we are um, using different, different, selectively p picking different memories that we have. One of the, one of the uh, acutely formative events of, of my uh, own life was being do adopted at birth. And I had this, um, um, I wouldn't say it was a memory exactly, but a, a sense of the first few days after being born, of being in a kind of free fall, um, feelings of um, abandonment and fear and anger, um, very intense. But I'll, I'll, with this underlying sense of, of um, no ground to stand on, and there's another part to the story, though, that eventually, I don't know whether it, how many days it was, I was was picked up by my adoptive parents, and, and you could say that I went from free fall to being caught in loving arms and taken to a loving home. The first half of the story might have might have concluded that the world is a dangerous place and and certainly there have been times in my life when that has been very much a part of my thinking and ways of re relating to the to the earth and to the to being alive but you could also read the second part of the story as at the same time as the world being a cruel dangerous place it's also full of kindness. Kindness, you could say, of strangers. And that we, we, can, we can go into free fall and be, and be held, caught and held. One of the... Um, Features of practice is is becoming more aware of these these stories we tell ourselves, and perhaps also about the, how selective we may be about our experience in 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 deciding which stories to base our sense of self on. So the next um, chapter continues the discussion about the way we choose our lives and our pasts to, to suit our present. And um, it describes a kind of a teaching aid that 
is used in Adlerian psychology, which I mentioned in an um, encouragement talk last week, was this um, three-sided column, pillar, uh, could just be um, a, created out of a, out of a sh sheet of paper uh, folded into three. And uh, the philosopher describes it in this fashion. This triangular column represents our psyche. From where you are sitting right now, you should be able to see only two of the three sides. What is written on the sides? Youth. One says, the bad, that bad person, and the other says, poor me. And the philosopher goes on to say that um, uh, pretty much all anxious people come either um, in coming from the that bad person side of the of the of the column or the poor me side. Not just in counselling do these these two attitudes or ways of thinking appear, but also in relating to family and work situations, and, and um, many many times uh, we flip flop between these two. To blame that bad person or to plead poor me. These two sides, but there's a third side, and. And, the, and on the third side is this question, what should I do from now on? And we, we don't necessarily see this. We get stuck in what is wrong with others or what is wrong with ourselves. And then there's this third choice, which is to, to ask what to do here and now. And with a sense of the, pre the present having, is being pregnant. What should I do from now on? because now is always moving on. Where are we going? What are we doing? We can choose. What we did in Jukai, was re it really comes from, from this question, what should I do from now on? What do I see as health-giving way of, of going forward for myself and others? philosopher, this is precisely the point we should be talking to each other about. What should I do from now on? We do not need that bad person or such like. Neither is poor me necessary. No matter how loudly you complain about them, I will just ignore it. I will not ignore it out of indifference. I will ignore it because there is nothing there which we should talk to each other about. If I were to listen to stories about that bad person or poor me and sympathise with your plight by saying things that that must have been tough or it's not your fault at all, it is true that you might get some temporary solace and you might even give a sense of satisfaction that it was good to get counselling or good to consult this person. But would that change things the next day and every day after that? 
Wouldn't you just want to seek more solace the next time you are, next time you are hurt? Isn't that dependence? That is why in Adlerian psychology we talk to each other about what should one do from now on. And this, this third one, um, it's, the place, it's the place where we make vows, it's the place where we make choices, in the present. The youth says, but if you're saying I should think seriously about my own from now on, then first I would need to know about until now as its precondition. Philosopher, no, right now you are in front of me. It is enough to know that you are in front of me. And in principle, there is no way for me to know the past you. I repeat, the past does not exist. The past you speak of is nothing more than a story skillfully compiled by you now. Please understand this point. This is very much where we, we come from in Zen too. The past is memories, the future is worries, plans. Um, part of, important part of Adlerian psychologies is is um, for the, the patient or the person being counseled to develop self-reliance. Think of the, the main job of a Zen teacher really is to uh, free the student of his or her influence. Next um, part is from a t chapter called One Can Choose One's Own Life. And it is um, it's looking into this self-reliance. Philosopher, to paraphrase Kant, though whose discussion of self-reliance is pertinent here, man's juvenile condition is not due to lack of reason. It is that he has neither the resolution nor the courage to use his reason without direction from another. That is to say, man is responsible for being stuck in his own juvenile condition. To trust oneself to uh, not be, be buffeted by um, the opinions of others.
Kant also says, have courage to use your own reason. Philosopher, now why do people try to keep themselves in a juvenile condition? Or to put it more plainly, why do people reject self-reliance? The youth replies, is it because of cowardice? It may be in some cases, but consider Kant's words once more. It is easier to live according to direction from another. One does not have to think about difficult things and one does not have to take responsibility for failure. All one has to do is swear a certain allegiance and someone will take care of all one's troublesome tasks. From the children in families and schools to members of society, working at companies and government offices to clients who come for counselling. Isn't it so? I think here the now of the role that social media plays in forming opinions. You can, you can follow this or that blogger and you don't have to think about difficult things. You just, you just um, absorb this or that opinion. Or, or with counselling um, therapy, um, we can have this fantasy that the therapist is going to fix us, which would be great if, if we were broken. skipping around here a bit. Here we are. This um, next passage is from the part three of the book, from the principle of competition to the principle of cooperation which is an important part of, of Adler's uh, worldview. And um, I could say that probably f still fairly controversially, he um, strongly uh, advised that the educator or the counsellor um, not give praise or, um, or scold or... Um, rebuke teachers and this the the vo the, vo the youth in this in this text has been away for 3 years and taken up the role of being a school teacher so that's why many of the examples in the book are of of children in a in a in a school setting first the the youth starts by by um, summarizing what he he believes to be the Adlerian approach. The educator must not be a judge, but rather a counsellor who is always there for the child. 
and rebu rebuking as a form of conduct that not only reveals one's immaturity and gives rise to contempt, it gives rise to contempt. The final objective of education is self-reliance and one must not stand in the way of that path. All right, for the time being, I will accept that one must not rebuke, but only if you acknowledge my next question, philosopher, and your next question, youth. We often discuss with colleagues and parents whether rebuke-based child-rearing and praised-based child-rearing are right or wrong. It goes without saying that rebuke-based child-rearing is unpopular. This is likely due to the trends of our time, and there are many people who reject it from a moral standpoint. I agree with the standpoint myself for the most part, as I have no desire to rebuke. On the other hand, praise-based child-rearing has an enormous following. Practically no one renounces it directly. And certainly with, one can sometimes hear very exaggerated forms of this where, where kids get praised for everything. And we were staggered when we went to the States to discover that kindergartens would have graduation ceremonies when the children were leaving to go on to primary school. Um, seemed an excessive um, sort of stroking of the self. And um, I think here of the, um, the praise and blame they appear in the, in the teachings of the Dharma as, as one of the four pairs of, of worldly winds, the things that really um, uh, take us off balance. Um, so praise and blame here, and then the other three, um, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, and fame and ill repute. So one one of side of these these pairs uh, puffs us up. We f we feel um, superior, maybe, or and then the other side, loss, pain repute, these things deflate us. And so we, we are continually off balance when, when faced with these, um, these winds, these things that agitate us. So The youth has some some pertinent questions to ask about about um, renouncing praise. He says three years ago, when I asked why to, we should renounce praise, your answer went something like this: Praising is the passing of judgment by a person of ability on a person of no ability, and its goal is manipulation and therefore one must not praise. The philosopher, yes, I did say that. Youth, I believed that and I practiced no praising education faithfully. However, this only lasted until my mistake was noticed by a certain student. By a certain student? It was several months ago. One of the worst problem children in our school handed in a book report that he had written it was an open assignment for summer vacation. 
and to my astonishment, he had gone and read Camus' The Stranger. Moreover, I was astonished by what he had written down about the book. It was quite a wonderful essay, brimming with fresh sensibilities that only a sensitive boy going through puberty could possess. Once I had read it, therefore, I knew what I was doing. Once I had read it, before I knew what I was doing, I praised him. I said, hey, great work. I had no idea you could write such a fine composition. It's changed my opinion of you. The moment I said it, I knew I'd messed up. Those words, it's changed my opinion of you in particular, were filled with that judgment from above that Adler talks about. I guess you could say that I was belittling him. Philosopher, yes, because those words would not have come out otherwise. Youth, regardless, I had actually praised him. Moreover, I had done so with the words of undisguised judgment. Now, what kind of expression do you think this problem child had on his face upon hearing those words? Was he repelled? Ah, if only I could show you the face he made. He gave me such a smile, the likes of which I had never shown, seen before, the smile of a truly pure and innocent boy. I felt just like my head had been in a fog, and now it was clearing before my eyes. And I said to myself, what is up with Adler anyway? Thanks to getting caught up in this quackery, I've been giving an education that could only take away such a smile, such joyfulness. What kind of education is that? Philosopher, so then you started praising? Youth, yes, of course. I praised without hesitation, not only him, but the other students too. And when I did that, they seemed pleased with it, and they made progress in their schoolwork. The more I praised them, the more that drive they exhibited. I could only think of it as a positive cycle of growth. Philosopher, and you were getting excellent results. Youth, yes, but I wasn't just praising them, all of them indiscriminately, of course. I praised them according to their level of effort and success, because I did, if I did otherwise, the compliments would have just been lies. That problem child who wrote the book report is now a total bookworm. He spends tons, he reads tons of books and writes essays on them. It's really wonderful, isn't it, how books can open up one's world. I imagine that pretty soon the library room at school won't satisfy him anymore and he'll start going to the university library. So um, the, the philosopher goes on to to say that his his reason for uh, trying to avoid praise and, and rebuking is because um, they give rise to competition. Um, that's that's how it fits into the, into this this system, this psychological system. But I think it's a koan. This I don't think it's completely clear. Um, my teacher Bowden Colheed would would. Um, recount how very, very, very sparing Roshi Kaplow was in giving anyone praise. Um, unfortunately, he was not sparing in his, his doling out of rebukes. And they were fairly common, anyway. And um, my teacher, Roshi Bowden, would, said that when he started to teach, he made a point of, of 
being more liberal with, with praise. Um, because he himself had been been um, subjected to this this praiseless or almost praiseless environment and found it kind of bleak. And I I wonder whether it's something that's that the degree of which it is is helpful or not um, depends on on how we've been conditioned. And you think of American society so competitive, um, and that conditioning being so deep. Um, that perhaps it would be harder for those, for people in, in such a, a culture to um, never be praised. And, and we also have in our culture this deep um, sense of, of lack and inferiority, which is actually also part of Adler's, Adler's um, psychology that we're not going to get into tonight. Of course, um, Japanese society is also um, competitive, very competitive. But there, there's more of a, a group focus. What um, one teacher, David Loy, called the we-go as opposed to the ego. But I know for myself, um, it's... I spent a lot of time, a lot of energy in my training, uh, craving approval and and shunning um, rebukes. And uh, this really came to a head for me when when uh, um, Richard passed his koan for before me, and and I found myself so jealous and, and, and resentful of this. And it seemed such a travesty to feel this way, given that I was every day vowing to take refuge in Buddha and resolve that with all beings I was going to awaken. How, how narrow and, and mean-spirited my 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 feelings were in in comparison to that great vow with all beings i think it's a wonderful part of the of our three treasures that this is vowing that with all beings we will understand the great way that we will enter into the sutra treasures treasure Well, our time is up. We'll stop here and um, continue perhaps in the next Taisho with the, the rest of the um, passages from The Courage to be Happy. <laughs>